Lord, you are worthy of all praise. There is no one else in this entire universe like you. For you are the creator, you are the sustainer, and then when your creation rebelled against you, you became the redeemer, Lord. And we praise you for this. We praise you for your great love, your mercy, your grace. We also praise you, Lord, because of your justice and your holiness. But in the midst of your holiness and justice and our sin, Lord, that you did send Christ as the redeemer. And I pray that now as we open your word together, that you will teach us how to live lives that are praise offerings and worship offerings to you as we offer our bodies and our lives as living sacrifices. May you teach us through your word and through your spirit how you are calling us to live today. In Jesus' name, amen. Back when I was in middle school, there was a certain series of books that I found very enjoyable to read. And the series was called Choose Your Own Adventure. Choose Your Own Adventure. They were a unique type of books for a couple of reasons. One reason is that they were written from the second person perspective, which meant that you as the reader became a part of the story. You would take on the role, usually the lead role, be it a detective or a spy or a doctor, maybe a race car driver or a mountain climber. And one of the other really unique things is that you got to choose the direction the book would go. Because every few pages in the book, there would become a crossroads where you were given two or three options of what you wanted to happen next in the book. For instance, if you were a detective, you might be given the option of, okay, if you want to go into that dark warehouse to investigate, turn to page 36. But otherwise, if you prefer to go back to your office and maybe do some more research first, turn to page 52. You get to choose. Or another example, if you're a mountain climber in this book, you're climbing up the mountain, you see a really intriguing cave over there, you get a choice. Do you want to go investigate that cave? If so, so turn to page 75. Instead, if you want to keep going up the mountain because you're worried it might get dark before you get to the top, instead go to page 92. So it's like that type of thing where you have choices, and the choices you make in the book really dictate and determine the direction that the book is going to take and including its outcome. Now, are any of you familiar with these books, Choose Your Own Adventure? They're kind of cool. As I was thinking about these books, I was saying, man, might be kind of neat to go back and read those again. But I also thought about how these books of, of the choices you make determining your direction, de- de- determining your outcome, these books are a really good illustration of what real life is like. That we have choices, and the choices we make really do determine much about our direction and even the outcomes of our lives. And if this is true, it really begs the question of how, what choices are we making? Are the choices we are making honoring to God? Are they leading us in a direction that is really going to be the best direction for us to go? These are questions I think are worthy of our serious consideration. So that's what we're going to look at today is Matthew chapter 7 to see what Jesus has to say about choices that we make that determine our direction and our outcome. So I invite you, if you haven't done so already, to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're in a series right now called Life in the Kingdom, in which we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, trying to understand in practical ways what does it look like to live with Jesus as our King. And we're actually very near to the end of the series. We're going to end it up next week. But even today, we're already in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you may be wondering, how do we know this is really the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I turn your attention to Matthew 7, verse 12. Jesus says, So in everything, 
Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now you may be wondering, okay, how does this really indicate we're at the conclusion? This is the verse just before our passage we're digging into today. Well, it has the golden rule, which, you know, is a good thing to follow. Do to others what you want done to you. But the more relevant thing to the idea of the sermon structure comes in the second half of that verse. It says, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This was not the first time in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has referenced the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets was a phrase that really could include uh, the Old Testament, just saying, okay, this sums up the Old Testament, what, what God has said through the law, the prophets, stuff like that. But this is not the first time that Jesus mentioned the law and the prophets in the Sermon on the Mount. Back earlier, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what these two verses represent, Matthew five seventeen and seven twelve, are bookends on what could be called the body of the Sermon on the Mount. You see, sermons have structure to them. There's a logical flow of thought from beginning to end. A sermon, ideally, is not just this random list of of statements and phrases that's just jumbled all together. Instead, no, there's a structure. There's a flow of thought. And these two references to the Law and the Prophets serve as bookends, showing this is the body, this is the main content of the Sermon on the Mount. And the main theme here is how the kingdom of God is the fulfillment of what God had foretold through the Law and the prophets. And Jesus is explaining authoritatively what life looks like in God's kingdom. Now, this sermon also has an introduction and a conclusion, just as any of my sermons do, just as any sermon you'll hear at pretty much any other church has. You have the body, the, the main part of the sermon, but then you have the introduction and the conclusion as well. The introduction runs from Matthew 5, uh, verse 3 to, to verse 16 where Jesus covers the Beatitudes, which are these character qualities that that are considered blessed in the kingdom of God. Then in the introduction, Jesus also uh, talks about how we are the salt and light of the earth. We are called to live distinctive lives that that really uh, represent Christ well. And then in the body of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets into what this distinctive life really looks like. And then you have the conclusion, which we are going to begin today, which is in chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. In this conclusion, Jesus has four different pairs of contrasting images to try to drive home his point at the end of the sermon. The the four pairs, he starts out with uh, two different roads, and then two different trees, and then two different claims that people make before God, and then after that, two different houses. Today we're going to be looking at the first two pairs, the, 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 uh, the roads and the trees. And then next week we'll look at the claims and the houses. But what Jesus is doing here is really bringing the sermon to a conclusion, driving it home, telling the importance of applying what he is saying. So here's the first part of the conclusion, verses 13 through 20 of Matthew 7, which we're looking at today. So I invite you to follow along, Matthew 7, verse 13. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? 
or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus starts off here with one of these images. It's an image that uses two different gates, two different roads. And what he's showing here is that this is really two different ways to live. One of the roads is wide, as is the gate. And Jesus says that this is the road that, that represents the popular, more comfortable way of life, which is also the way of life without Jesus as king. And this road is, is the broad, right, wide road. And I don't know about you, but for me, generally I prefer to drive on nice, broad, wide roads. I mean, there are certain times where a narrow, twisty road in the mountains is fun if you have a sports car. But in general, we probably prefer nice, wide roads with a nice shoulder on either side so you um, feel safe there on that nice, wide road. And we have to recognize that wide roads, according to Jesus, are popular. He says many enter through this wide gate under this broad road. They're popular. And, you know, I, I was thinking about how Shelley and I enjoy um, on vacation sometimes going down to the Smoky Mountains. It's really been our favorite vacation destination since we got married. We've been down there a handful of times. The most popular waterfall in the Smoky Mountain National Park is called Laurel Falls. The reason it's most popular is not so much because it's such an amazing falls. It's very nice, but there are nicer ones in the park. The reason it's the most popular is because of the trail that takes you to the falls. The trail to Laurel Falls is paved. It's nice and wide. You don't have to stumble over rocks. You can take strollers on it. You can take wheelchairs on it. It's smooth. It's a nice trail, and that is what makes it the most popular waterfall in the park because it has a nice, wide, smooth trail. And that's the way it is oftentimes in life, that when there is an easier route to take, people will naturally take that route. It's the more popular one. And that's what Jesus says. That you have this nice, wide road in this metaphor that he's using, and it is the one that is more popular. He says many enter through this gate, and people are on this nice, broad road for a variety of different reasons. Some people are on that road because they deliberately are rejecting Christ or God. Maybe because of intellectual reasons or because of emotional reasons. They just say, you know what? I don't believe in Christ. I don't want God to be a part of my life. But for many, many others on this road, because remember, many enter through this gate that leads to this wide road. For many, many others, they're on there simply because they're just kind of going with the flow. The crowds are there. They're just kind of flowing along with the crowd. And they really don't stop to ask, is this the right direction to be going? They're just kind of going along with the status quo. They're going along with what is popular. And then if a question does rise up in their mind and they wonder, okay, is this really the right way or not? Well, odds are good they're going to look around and be like, well, majority opinion says this is the right way. If so-and-so is doing it, it can't be that bad. I mean, everyone's doing it. I should probably do it too. And then you probably have some parents out there who are saying, well, if everyone else jumped off a cliff, would you do that too? But the reality is with this, Majority people, even if they say I wouldn't jump off a, off a cliff, even if everyone else is, majority of people are still on that broad road that Jesus is describing here. 
And so, so we look at this topic about how there are so many going on this wide road. And some of them, like I said, have deliberately rejected Christ. Some of them actually have a decent amount of Jesus or church sprinkled into their life. But at the same time, they are not living with Jesus as their king. So that is one route that many, many people take. There's another route that is the less popular, less comfortable route. That is the route with Jesus as their king. And Jesus describes that as the narrow way. Now, we think, okay, less popular, less comfortable. I mean, what is this? Typically, you would think if we're traveling with a king, if we're the king's companions on, on a journey, surely we are entitled to some nice luxuries along the way. We have to understand that is not how Jesus works. I mean, he is a king, but you look at his life, he did not live as a typical earthly king would live. His, his way is a little bit different. But he says, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate onto that narrow path. Now, as we said, this path is the less popular one. It's the less comfortable one. One of the reasons it's less comfortable is because it means giving up our own opinions and our own personal goals. It means submitting ourselves to Christ, letting him be the king of our lives, letting him have the steering wheel rather than us staying in the driver's seat. I think of Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is the pathway that's narrow. It's the pathway, though, of following Christ. But, but this is not easy. It's not comfortable. I mean, it's sacrificial in a sense because Jesus says, You must come after me, take up his cross daily. Back in that culture, anyone who took up their cross was on their way to being crucified. You think about Jesus on the way to Golgotha, carrying the cross beam. He had really no rights anymore, humanly speaking. He was not in control, humanly speaking, of where he was going. He was already as good as dead. And he's saying that is to characterize our lives as well, if we are on this narrow way of following him, that we are giving up our rights. We're saying, Jesus, you take control of my life. I'm surrendering to you. Now, this is not a very popular way to live, is it? It's not easy. And even the Sermon on the Mount shows how following God's way and God's kingdom is not an easy route to go. I mean, it's hard to be poor in spirit. No one likes to be poor in spirit. I mean, we we tend to puff ourselves up with pride. It's hard to let go of worry. It's hard to abolish lust from our lives. It's, It's hard to pray. I mean, we, I think we all acknowledge prayer is good, but it's, it's hard to be consistent and faithful in our prayers. It's hard to let go of those earthly treasures that vie for our attention. Following Jesus is not easy. And that is why this narrow pathway that he is calling us to is the less popular one. G.K. Chesterton was a, a Christian leader and author who lived back in the early 1900s. If you don't know that name, you may know though the name C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis lived in the mid-1900s. G.K. Chesterton and his writings deeply influenced C.S. Lewis, including C.S. Lewis's conversion to Christ. And if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's writings, and if you read G.K. Chesterton, you'll see a lot of Chesterton in what Lewis writes. But listen to what G.K. Chesterton says about the Christian life. He says, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. So what he's saying is that many people, when they look at 
the Christian way of life, when they hear Jesus call to take up, take up our cross and follow him, when they look at the Sermon on the Mount, they're like, you know what? That's nice for those people, but that's too hard for me. I don't really even want to try it. So, so they haven't really tried the Christian life. They haven't tried submitting their lives to Christ through faith. Instead, they just look at it from the outside and say, no, no, don't think so. And that's what keeps a lot of people on that broad path. The majority of the world is simply following this herd mentality down this path. And, and this is a big deal because what Jesus is saying here, um, which points to the reason why anyone would want to take this narrow road. I mean, if it's less popular, if it's less comfortable, what's the motivation to take the narrow road in the first place? Well, the motivation largely has to do with the outcome. Because the narrow road leads to life. The broad road, Jesus says, leads to destruction, which ultimately is talking about hell, eternity separated from God. So what Jesus is doing is really saying, okay, you look at all the people around the world. I mean, 7 billion people now, all the people who've lived down through world history. I mean, there are all kinds of nuances in people's different stories of their lives, but really if you boil down all these lives... You basically just have two paths. You have the path that submits to God's way through Christ, and you have the path that doesn't. One path leads to destruction. The other path leads to life. That's, that's bottom line, the two different outcomes to life. And all has to do with our response to Christ. But, but this life that Jesus is talking about here is, is really the motivation for following this narrow path. As we're talking about this, okay, you have two different ways, and one way leads to destruction. Most people are on that path. And you have this other way with Christ that leads to life. There would be many people in our culture who would get really upset at this type of thinking. Who would say, you know what, that's really intolerant of you to say that. That's really judgmental of you. You know what, I see why that's called a narrow way. That's so narrow-minded of you to say there's only one way. It's only follow Jesus or else. That's how a lot of our culture thinks and the reason is that we live in a culture that has put humans put us me myself and i on a pedestal above everything else now it is true that that we as humans are unique and special in god's creation that we are the only part of god's creation that is made in his image so we are special what ends up happening is that humans get put up on this pedestal saying you know what we are the final arbiters of right and wrong But that's not the case if there is a God. If there is a God who created the world and sustains the world, then he is the supreme being. We are not. He is. And if he designed this world to operate in a certain way, wouldn't it be wise to find out how he designed things to operate and to live in accordance with that? Let me give you an example of this. This last Friday night, we had a movie night here at church showing the movie God's Not Dead. It was really fun, and one of the cool things... See, we had some tasty snacks. We had the popcorn, we had candy, we had water. And here you have Gary and Perry making our popcorn. Now you have this cool popcorn maker. I mean, it's a really neat thing in how it makes very tasty movie-like popcorn. And one of the things I noticed as we were setting up this popcorn machine is you have this cool instruction manual. I thought, okay, what type of instructions do you have for making popcorn? And it just went through how you do it. It went through all the parts in there and stuff like that. But there's a reality here in making popcorn that in order to make popcorn, you have to put the kernels in the kettle. Put the kernels in the kettle, let them pop for a little while, and then then you have popcorn. 
Now imagine someone came along to Gary there and said, Gary, I want to propose a different way of making popcorn. I don't really like your way. Your way is kind of abusive to those kernels to put them in such heat there. Why don't we just lay them down on the floor of that contraption? And there's still that heat lamp. It should work all right. Why don't we do that? Gary will say, no, they need to be in the kettle. That's where they get warm enough in order to actually pop. So you get popcorn. They say, no, no, I want to do it this other way. I mean, why don't we put some down here? We'll put some over here on the table. We'll put some up here on top. We'll just put some straight into a bag. We'll get popcorn. Gary's like, no, if you really want popcorn, they have to go in the kettle. That person may then say, if they're coming from this culture's mindset that we have today, well, that is so intolerant of you. I want to be able to put them all these other places. The others, these other places are equally good. Why, why are you saying it can only be the kettle? Well, because the kettle, in the way this machine was designed, the kettle is the only place those kernels are going to be able to pop. That's the way it was designed. It's the same way in the way that God designed this universe, that we would do well to listen to his instructions for how he made things work. It's not intolerant if, if, if there is a true way that something is designed, if there is an instruction manual for how it works. It's not intolerant to say, you know what, this is the way it was made. This is the truth. I mean, we can have an arrogant attitude, and that's not right. But pointing to truth is not intolerant. All it is is a recognition of what reality is. And so we come back to this passage that would rub a lot of people the wrong way in our culture, looking at this narrow way of following Christ about how it's really this narrow path that, that leads to, to life that's only available through Christ. We have to recognize this is God's revealed truth. It's not intolerant to point to that. All it is is a recognition of reality of how God created the world and how he created redemption. Jesus in John 14, 6 provides one of the most familiar examples of this narrow way about how he is the key. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I mean, in a sense, that is a narrow path. There aren't many different ways to God. It's one path through Jesus. And one of the really cool things when you dig into this passage is that word way. The original Greek word for way there is the same word as the word road back here in Matthew chapter 7. It's the word hadas. It's spelled O-D-O-S with a ha sound at the beginning of it. Hadas. I am the hadas, the, the truth and the life. And so really what Jesus is saying here is just, look, I am the way, I am the road, I am the path through which people go to get to God. I mean, I'm the true path, I'm the path that leads to life. That's why he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. One of the other cool things, when you look into this idea of Jesus being the way um, and us being on that way to God uh, through the road of Christ, is that in the book of Acts, the early followers of Christ, um, I mean, they, they were called Christians after a while, but they were also identified a number of times as followers of the way. It's the same word, hadas. They, they were followers of this one road, Jesus Christ, this one road to God. It's kind of a neat thing to kind of trace through Scripture. But Jesus says, you know what? I'm the way, the truth, and life. I'm the way you get to, to God. And we look at this. Jesus is the life. And this is the motivation for following this narrow way. Even though it's not the most popular, even though at times it's not all that comfortable, especially when we need to, to subject our own will and our own opinion to God's, it's the way that leads to life. 
And I, I think about my life. I've been a Christian for almost 16 years now. And if you look at the time frame of all that, I was, an, I, I was not a Christian for nearly the first 20 years, but I've been a Christian for almost 16. So I can look at that very clear before and after. And I can say the life that God has worked out in me since becoming a Christian just blows away anything I had before that. Yes, before that, I had a cool truck, cool stereo, cool accomplishments. And, I mean, those things were nice, but they're fleeting. They don't, they don't really satisfy you, and there's still a sense of emptiness. And then I look at my life now, look at those things I used to look for identity and purpose in, and look now, and now Christ has given me an identity and a purpose that can't be shaken. There's a sense of hope that I can have now that I never could have had before. I mean, I even look at the relationships I have with people around me. There's an amazingness of how the bond of Christ can give a depth of relationship that you can't get without that bond. So the life that Jesus has to offer is amazing. Yet many people are on this broad path that does not include Christ or that life at all. And unfortunately, as they go along that path, They don't even see that there is another path that does lead to life through Christ. C.S. Lewis, speaking of him, we mentioned him a few minutes ago. He said in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he said, The safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. So he's saying, okay, from kind of a, a dark, satanic perspective, that's the safest road to get someone to hell. It's just, you know what, don't, don't jar them too much. Just kind of let them just proceed along with the rest of the crowd. Don't even let them know anything. Next thing you know, they're at the end of their life, met judgment, and they haven't turned to Christ. It's the safest road. It's just gradual. And that's what many people are on. It's just this broad path to a Christless eternity. And one of the things that creates challenges in that as well is that you have people along that path who Jesus identifies as false prophets who are trying to keep people on the broad path, keep people away from the narrow path that leads to Christ. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, in our culture, when we think of prophets, we easily think of people who tell the future. Almost like this fortune teller, but from a biblical perspective, we we kind of baptize it in um, Christianity a little bit and say, well, God reveals to them the future and they tell the future. That is a little bit of what a prophet does. But really, the the basic identity of a prophet is God's mouthpiece to the world. That, That prophets take God's revelation and God's word and they proclaim it to the world around them and apply it in terms of how this impacts people. Now, a false prophet is someone who somehow distorts God's word or God's truth. And Jesus is saying, watch out for false prophets. And he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing. So on the outside, they look pretty good. They look pretty appealing. The stuff they are saying sounds pretty decent at first. He says, inside, they are ferocious wolves which means that at the very least, I mean, you could dig into what that looks like, and you have any variety of types of false prophets, but at the very least, they are certainly not healthy people to be around. They, they're going to be dangerous for you. But Jesus is saying, watch out, because if you aren't careful, they're going to divert you from the narrow path and keep people on this broad path away from Christ. 
But the interesting thing is, again, they look, they look pretty good. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're giving the appearance they're speaking from God, with God's authority and God's word. But he says, no, they're false prophets. They aren't speaking my word. And we have to watch out for that even today. I mean, one of the more prominent um, false teachings out there that you hear from some pastors or some churches or some books is called the health and wealth gospel which basically says that if you follow God, if you pray, if you give a little bit of money to this ministry, he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Your life is going to be great then. That's not biblical. It's not biblical at all. Another uh, thing is just really watering down Scripture or even trying to throw Scripture out. Um, Just to mention one name that's kind of been in the news recently is Rob Bell. He was pastor of a very influential large church in Michigan until a couple years ago. Then he wrote a book called Love Wins. And the title sounds nice. The content of the book was unbiblical because he basically says there is no hell. And so this started this whole firestorm of controversy around him. He ended up leaving the church and is in the years since then, just kind of moved more and more in a liberal direction. And uh, uh, recently he was doing an interview with Oprah in which he... um, he basically was throwing out the Bible, um, or at least significant portions of it, calling it 2,000-year-old scribblings and saying that if the church wants to be relevant to our culture, we need to just throw away at least parts of those 2,000-year-old scribblings that, that stand in opposition to what our culture values, or else we're going to find ourselves increasingly irrelevant. But again, 2,000-year-old scribblings? I mean, I beg to differ on that. But at the same time, he and his wife are still writing very influential books. And this is the case of a lot of times people are, are very spiritual, but they aren't gospel-centered. And I think that's one of the key things in understanding true versus false prophets is you can be very spiritual. You have all kinds of people writing spiritual things and saying even decent-sounding things. It's not like everything false prophet says is wrong or bad. If it was, I think people would recognize it more easily. I think you have some pastors or churches out there that um, it's probably better defined as motivational speaking than it is as biblical preaching. Because what oftentimes gets left out is these realities of sin and Christ's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf to pay our death penalty. It's really sacrificing the gospel. It's not enough just to look at Jesus as an example to emulate or an inspiration for our lives we need to recognize that the central to the gospel is his sacrifice. And again, that is what is oftentimes left out from today's false prophets who really gain a, a big hearing and keep people on that broad path. I want to point us to a couple of passages that talk about the centrality of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 uh, contains one of the clearest descriptions of the gospel. I'm going to read the first few verses. Paul writes, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel. That I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. So he's talking about the gospel. A little bit later, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. That's what's of first importance. That's the essence of the gospel. That you cannot have the gospel. You cannot have true biblical teaching or preaching or writing or anything like that if you don't keep that dead center. That's why Paul also earlier in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
he, he's talking about his ministry. He said, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the message about God. Instead, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's saying Jesus and his crucifixion, his resurrection were central to my message. He didn't say, um, I mean, you, you think about what he was doing there in Corinth. It wasn't like he was a broken record saying, okay, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is crucified. He's not a broken record just saying those same words over and over and over. Even look at his letters. He covers a wide variety of topics, but he keeps coming back to the gospel. Everything that he teaches, everything he says is seen through the lens of Jesus and him crucified and his resurrection. So this gospel needs to be at the center. And that gospel is what helps people get onto that path that leads to life rather than staying on that broad path. So we need to watch our influences. Jesus is not calling us to be um, heresy hunters. He's not calling us to go out and try to um, just say, oh, there's a false prophet, there's one, there's one. Because remember, earlier in the same chapter, he's, he's condemning judgmentalism. But he does call us to be discerning, to accurately understand this is truth, this is error. So Jesus is pointing to the importance of making sure that we are following God in spirit and in truth. I think of Second Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 3. It applies then, applies now. For a time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, if people just gather around them what their itching ears want to hear, that's a good recipe for staying on that nice broad path that leads to hell. Instead, Jesus offers an off-ramp that leads to heaven and that leads to true life here and for eternity. On the cover of the bulletin is this kind of cool picture of this exit ramp. Um, just kind of pictures this passage. Now, you kind of have to twist the illustration a little bit because Jesus is talking about two entrances. They imagine kind of parallel and then you go in two different directions. But the reality in our lives is that from pretty much everyone, you're on this broad path. You may have Christian influences along the way, but you're on this broad path, and you have to take an exit at some point through faith in Christ to get on that narrow path of following him and having a true eternal life. You have to make that decision consciously of placing your faith in Christ, and that is how you receive grace and forgiveness and eternal life. And so I think it's important that everyone, including all of us here, examine ourselves ask, are we following that narrow way? Are we fully trusting in Christ? Is our life being conformed to Christ's likeness? Jesus said in that passage about false prophets, you will know them by the fruit of their lives. Are their lives, are their teaching, are our lives showing the fruit of the Spirit, manifesting the qualities in, in the Sermon on the Mount? Are we growing in our love for Christ and our love for God's Word? Because these are things that can help indicate, you know what, we are on that narrow way towards true life. We have to recognize, though, that if we want to follow that way, it will not be popular. There will be times where people mock us behind our backs. There will be times where people just shake their hand, heads and don't understand. There will be times where we may even feel lonely because we're going the road less traveled. But it's the way that leads to life. It's a way that, that many before us have gone, many after us will continue to go. I think of even the movie that we watched on Friday, God's Not Dead. It showed how today in our schools and all kinds of parts of society, you have to go against the grain if you want to stand up for God. But it's been that way ever since, I mean, for, for human history. 
throughout human history. I think of back in the 300s, there was this guy, Athanasius. If you haven't heard of Athanasius, you should get to know him because he is very instrumental in our beliefs today. He didn't write any of scripture, but he was, he was a theologian, he was a church leader, and he really took a stand against the world and against even the Christian world at that point. Because, um, you know, a lot of people back in that time were really in, in some ways against what's known as the deity of Christ and against the Trinity. Athanasius stood up for these things. And at one point, some of his colleagues and even some of his family members are saying, Athanasius, you just need to give up on these beliefs because the whole world is against you in these things. What was Athanasius' response? He said, well, then it is Athanasius against the whole world. Because he, he understood what biblical truth was, who God really was, who Christ really was. And he took a stand even when it went against the grain of popular opinion. And time has shown, Scripture shows, that he was right. And we owe a tremendous uh, debt, in essence, to what he did in taking that stand and helping preserve pure theology and biblical doctrine. We are going to have to stand for Christ if we want to follow that narrow way that leads to life. I think of those Choose Your Own Adventure books. Each one of them ended, they had a bunch of different endings that were possible. Anywhere from about a dozen to 40 different endings, depending on the choices you make. But in our lives, in the lives of everyone you ever meet, there are really only two possible endings. Heaven, hell, life, death. And we have the opportunity to, to experience life ourselves and to help others experience it as well. I think of Joshua at the end of his life and ministry. He said, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My prayer is that we will be men and women who are devoted to, to making that intentional choice to follow Christ by faith and submit our lives to him. Now, as we look at this topic, I think it's natural to think about the people around us and think, you know what? Yeah, I, to the best of my knowledge, I'm following Christ in a narrow way, but I look at so many others, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, they're on that broad path. Uh, my heart goes out to them. What can I do? Well, there are a number of things we can do. We can point them to Christ verbally. We can try to be a good witness to them in our lifestyles, but we can also pray for them. Every year at this time, in the six weeks leading up to Easter, we have what we call the 40 days of prayer. What we do in the 40 days of prayer is commit to praying daily for at least five people around us who don't yet know Christ, who are on that broad path, and we pray for them that they will come to faith in Christ. Prayer is powerful because, not because it's magical in and of itself, but because it is going to a powerful God who can change hearts and lives. And so what we're going to do, we do this every year leading up to Easter, is that in your pews, you have cards that look like this. I invite you to take out two of them. They're uh, probably stuck behind the envelopes in your pews. Take out two of them. I want to encourage you to write the names of at least five people around you who are not currently following Christ. I want you to write the same names on each card because one card I want you to take with you today, put it in a place where you'll see it every day to remind you to pray for them. And over the next 40 days and hopefully beyond, you'll be praying for them. The other card I invite you to fold in half. In a few moments, we're going to have an opportunity to bring it up here. I'm going to bring this uh, clear box right down here, dead center. I'm going to invite you to fold the other card in half, drop it in that box. No one will ever look at those names, but it's a symbolic way over the next 40 days it will be displayed as a symbolic way of remembering these people 
who we are praying for. So in just a moment, Chris is going to play some quiet music. I'm going to just pray briefly for us right now. And then I invite you to, uh, as you're ready to bring the cards up, if you are not prepared or aren't able to do it today, um, there will be cards in the box up here in the future weeks. You can do it then as well. So let me pray for us, and then you can bring the cards up. Our Father, we thank you that you opened the way through Christ to know you and to have eternal life. And we pray that you will help us to grab hold of that life, even when it's not, not very popular or easy, to experience the life that Christ offers, Lord. And I pray that now as we write down the names of friends, loved ones, um, we pray that you'll give us wisdom on who you want us to be praying for and give us perseverance to be praying for them. In Jesus' name, amen.